This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming out. Uh, it's a, a special honor for us to have Mr. Ramirez here from the Chicago Federation of Labor um, to talk about unions today. Uh, I think we're going to probably keep this kind of open so as you go, if there's questions and things like that, right, feel free um, to jump in and ask your questions. This is a unique opportunity. Um, the Chicago Federation of Labor is an umbrella organization that that uh, reaches out to many different um, organized labor groups throughout Chicagoland, including um, the the, uh, mem- the employees here at Moraine Valley. So that would be the faculty, the um, adjunct faculty members, and uh, the support staff, which includes our secretaries, janitorial staff, maintenance guys, things like that. So um, we are happy to have Mr. Ramirez on campus. And with that, I'll um, welcome you all to the library, and we'll get started. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Troy, for the invitation to be here. Um, it's an honor. I always like coming and, and speaking to uh, the different um, uh, educational institutions around the area, in Cook County mostly, which is our jurisdiction of the Chicago Federation of Labor. Troy did a good job of, of broadly explaining what we are. We are essentially an organization of organizations. There's about 320 different unions from... Uh, public employees to the folks that work at the zoo and electricians and carpenters and the trades, the service sector folks, everything in between. Um, About 320 organizations make up our organization. We represent about 500,000 working men and women throughout Cook County, which is our jurisdiction. To give you some perspective, Illinois has about uh, 1.2 million organized men and women uh, in their ranks. So that's kind of the broad perspective. Um, I am the secretary treasurer of the Chicago Federation of Labor, which in our organizational structure makes me the number two officer. Um, so in general, that's who I am. Why I'm here is to talk to you. I understand this is an economics class, is that correct? And maybe some others. So um, I know we'll have varying perspectives. And before I get started, how many of you are familiar with how unions work or have been a part of a union? Just briefly, any, if it could be a parent that was in the union or a friend or a relative, just have some kind of working understanding. All right, so it looks like not, not very many, um, not including faculty and staff either. Um, so what do we do? What are we about? You know, before I get into the future of what organized labor um, is I can throw numbers and statistics at you, and I'm here today with our communications director, Nick Kaliba. Go ahead, Nick, raise your hand. Let these folks know who you are. Nick does all of our communication stuff. He writes uh, speeches for us, too, and he's probably going nuts that I'm off script right now, but that's, uh, that's how I like to do things in an educational environment. I like to answer the questions and be as interactive and accessible as I can. Um, some of you may have criticisms of the unions from your limited knowledge of what we do, um, and how we function, uh, but I welcome the criticism. So there's not a question out there that can offend me um, when it comes to unions, uh, whether it's uh, it's meant to or not. So ask away at any time. Feel free to interrupt me, and I'll be more than happy to answer any question or to delve into any topic that's union-related. Um, so having said that, where are we at nationally? Nationally, union density has dropped slightly from 12.4 to 12.3%. Uh, Illinois, however, has posted a 1% gain. Uh, We are now about 17.5% of the overall workforce, which includes public sector and private sector. Um, How do people get unionized? How is it that we organize folks into unions? A lot of people don't understand. They'll go to a workplace, and the workplace will already be unionized, but they won't know how it got that way. 
and and how it works. Um, so let me talk a little bit about that and some of the obstacles that we face today. Union participation as a percentage of the overall population has declined over the decades. Um, not as fast as the actual number, total number, but it has. And that needs to be acknowledged so you can have some context. Um, but it's with great frustration that that's happened to many of the folks um, who seek to be part of the union. A lot of these folks um, in today's day and age inquire, uh, uh great resistance in wanting to form a union. There are over 16 million workers throughout this country that would be part of a union today if it were solely up to them. The fact of the matter is it's not. That's over 50% of our population. Union avoidance and union busting has become an, uh, a multi-billion dollar industry in this country. And you might want to ask yourself why. Why is that? Does anybody have an idea? Saves you money or saves who money? Saves the employer. That's exactly right. Union busting is, is, and like I said, if you have a difference in opinion from what I'm saying, stand up. Challenge me on it. You know, I'll be more than happy to, to engage in, in discourse with you and let you know where it is that we're coming from. But that's correct in our view. It's an investment for employers to do this, to um, keep their workers from establishing uh, themselves in an, as an organized body and bargaining collective. Collectively, collective bargaining is when all the workers come together and they go to the employer instead of as individuals, they come as a group and say, this is what we want and this is why. It doesn't mean that they get everything that they want. It means that the likelihood that they'll have uh, or be able to better their situation with respect to anything related to the job, whether it's safety on the work site, whether it's um, wages, terms and conditions of employment, health care, pensions, you know, you have a 75% greater likelihood that you'll have employer-paid health insurance if you are in an organized workforce, if you're a union member. You have a 70% or greater chance that you'll have an employer-paid pension if you are part of a union. You have a likelihood that you'll have uh, better wages. Now, the numbers may vary on this, uh, 20 to 30% better, regardless of industry, uh, wages, whether, you'll have, whether you have a unionized or non-unionized workforce. Right? Those numbers don't lie. They're out there. They're real. Employers understand what these numbers mean to them on a bottom line basis. Now, it'd be one thing if this country was uh, being run in a way that really valued workers inherently. We've gotten away from that to a great deal, and, and the statistics behind it don't lie. It was just decades ago that the percentage of employer-paid compensation for top echelons of management versus their average hourly worker was about a 40 to 1 ratio. It's over 420 to 1 today because that's how out of whack it's gotten. A CEO of a Fortune 500 company will earn more on their first day before lunch than their average hourly worker will in an entire year. So why is that? Why is it? You know, the middle class is the smallest it's ever been, which means unions are making up a greater portion of it. I always tell folks that are true believers in what we do that we are the defenders of the middle class. And I believe that because we are the largest interest group. I hate to use that term, but we are fighting for working men and women. Whether it's safety, whether it's terms and conditions of employment, or just flat-out wages. So that's what we believe in to our core. That's what we do. That's what we fight for. You know, a lot of folks wonder what we do engaging in politics, unions, that is, in general. 
what we like to tell folks in and out of the labor movement, people that are friends of labor, especially elected officials, is something that many of them know already. Anything that you gain at the bargaining table, bargaining with your employer, can be lost in the halls of Congress or in the halls of the state legislature or in a municipality like the city of Chicago. It can be lost there by legislation, by ordinance, um, by regulations, administrative policy, administrative action. So these are things that we constantly have to be vigilant of. And the reality is we need folks in elected position, elected office, that understand and respect dignity in the workplace, from the worker to the things that they are, are working for, their families, their health insurance, pension, and wages. So that's kind of at the core of what we do. Um, we like to get involved in crafting legislative policy. Why? Because if we can get something passed legislatively that's good policy for working men and women, it's likely to impact the folks that are organized, but also those that we intend to organize. You know, we fight for a living wage, and, and we fight for minimum wage increases. Up until a couple of years ago, it was 5.15 an hour. 5.15 an hour. It's terrible. It's terrible. You know, it's below poverty level wages. Now, that's gone up now. It's, it's gone up. But thanks in large part to what we've done, a lot of people wonder why labor gets involved in those fights because an organized workforce makes well above the minimum wage. But we know and we understand that if you can lift up, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. You ever heard that saying? That's kind of the, you know, it's kind of where we're coming from when we talk about that. And we can raise those floors. We can raise the ceilings as well. You know, a lot of what we do is we take on fights that don't necessarily involve our members directly, but our larger, broader policy things that we need to get involved in, like equal pay for women, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. That was just passed last year. And one of the most industrialized nations on the planet, we saw grappling with this issue that women should get paid as much as men for doing the same work. You know, that, that should have been done a long time ago. And in a unionized, in a unionized workplace, uh, workers have uh, recourse if something like that happens because when we negotiate contracts we don't negotiate a separate one for men or women or Latino or white or African American or Asian it doesn't matter to us if they're doing the job they get the appropriate compensation that's bargained for collectively so that's where we're at where are we going I mean I was joking about this with Nick on our way in the future of the labor movement here locally well I, I'm, I'm part of that future I'd like to think that I am anyway um, I'll be running for our highest office in just a few short months. And um, thankfully, I enjoy the support of people like Perry Buckley, who's uh, with the Cook County College Teachers uh, Union. Um, it's a democratic process. Uh, we don't just look for democracy with the general public. We practice it in our own organizations. And that's what we're about. So many of you are going to be heading out into workforces that... Uh, you know, might not be a trade, might not be a uh, service sector, but you're, in all likelihood, if you're in this region, you're going to encounter the union in some way. And it'd be good if you knew as much about it as possible. Um, so that's why I do speaking engagements like this as well, to expose us to the folks that are coming up and coming into the workforce at any level, whether it's service sector, public sector, trade, manufacturing. We try to do as much as we can to expose ourselves and what we're about and our principles to people like you, to the future. So how are we doing so far? Any questions? Anybody? Comments? Criticism? Anything? Go ahead. Uh, the order of my business or, uh, the I work at, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a threat. I mean, th- this is part of what you're up against. You know, the National Labor Relations Act, depending on what you fall under, whether it's the State Labor Act or the, the National Labor Relations Act, depending on what you do, um, there's also a Public Relations Act. But it all depends, you know, uh, on where you're at in a campaign and what's being said. Those are tactics that are very common, commonly used in campaigns. Uh, we've encountered much harsher tactics. There are people out there and organizations that do nothing but union avoidance and union busting. Uh, the difference is when you're doing union avoidance, the union's not in there yet, and you're trying to keep them out. When the union has an established uh, uh, representative capacity in a workplace and they try to get them out, that's union busting because the union's already there. So um, I'm assuming there is no union at your place as of yet. So in that case, we're talking about union avoidance. That may just be an employer saying, look, this is what I'm going to do. You know, most of the time that's not true. But let's get into some of the statistics. So if so many people, like I said earlier, want to be part of the labor movement, and it's their right, right? It's, it's not, not only the right by the National Labor Relations Act, but it's their constitutional right, the freedom of assembly, Right? Right? You have the right to join and to group however you want, right? What happens then is this, and to simplify it, a group of workers get together and say they want to join a union, and an employer will just say, no, I'm not going to allow it to happen. I'm going to fight you every step of the way. I'm going to close a business. If your immigration status is in challenge, I'm going to call you know, immigration, whatever it is, whatever underhanded tactic they can do. Now, this isn't true in every campaign, but it's true in many of them. So if there's all these workers out there that want to be unionized, why aren't they? Right? It's not because the unions haven't been trying to organize them. It's because they've been encountering this resistance, right? It's kind of what you're saying. So we do all that, and the laws that are in place now that are supposed to be protecting these workers, they're not being fully enforced, right? And the National Labor Relations Board is the administrative agency for the national government, which is in charge of administering the National Labor Relations Act, which governs how these elections are supposed to take place and whether violations of of the law have taken place they have an administrative through the administrative agency that kind of investigates this and rules on whether or not these employers engaged in inappropriate behavior so what ends up happening then is a group of workers may be encountering some of this resistance which it is a violation uh, for an employer to engage in that type of of activity with respect to workers wanting to, to unionize so they'll ratchet it up sometimes, right? So if all these workers want to have a union, how many, what percentage of folks that actually get to an election under the NLRB process actually uh, win? How, what, what, how many of them, how many, uh, what percentage of elections are won at the National Labor Relations Board? This is any group of employees that want to organize like, like where you work. What's your guess? What's your best guess as to what percentage of them are won? 20%? It's actually 50%, a little less, right? But it's supposed to be the worker's choice whether or not they want to have a union. What happens between the time that they express that they'd like to have a union and the election is they engage in these campaigns where they just beat the workers down. They'll fire a couple of the workers that are more outspoken. They'll harass them. They'll do these type of things. And many times we can get that, that behavior remedied, but sometimes it can't happen. Right? Sometimes these people lose their jobs. Sometimes these employers succeed in scaring their workers. So of the 50% or less that are won through this election process, which is something that organized labor is trying hard to change because we know it doesn't work. 
The National Labor Relations Act was set up to help workers who, wanted to, who want to organize. Instead, it's turned into something different because it's highly politicized. And over the years, the appointees to the people that run that, that National Labor Relations Board, um, they've been political appointees, and they've, they've carried out their political wishes. You know, the people that back them, most of them are pro-business. Most of them don't want unions. Most of them are anti-worker. And they've engaged in this type of behavior, and it's really stunted the growth of labor. So of those that actually win, that 50% or less, how many do you think get a first contract after that? What's your best guess? It's less than 50%. It's less than 50%. So it's a struggle. It's something that we have to fight tooth and nail to make happen. Right? That's the reality out there. But it's worth fighting for because you look at the folks that are unionized versus the non-unionized workforce in whatever sector they're in, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's trade, whether it's public sector, private sector, you know, you have a 30% greater chance of having uh, uh, a living wage. 70% a greater chance to have an employer paid health insurance and a pension. That's real. That's a middle-class existence. That's worth fighting for. And that's why we're out there doing what we do. Well, a lot of companies wouldn't want to be unionized because in that scenario, and some of them are like, you know, there, there's times where companies are like, hey, if that's what the workers want, that's what we'll do. But there are many times, an increased number uh, over the past few years of employers that fight it because it has a bottom line impact on them. It means they have to share the wealth. You know, what good does it do for a union to negotiate a contract that is so great that the employer can't pay it pay, or, or afford it and they go out of business? You can't over-negotiate in that way. So employers will always threaten that, but it's not the reality. Why would a union go in and organize a group of workers only to shut the company down months later by taking too much? The premise is to give the workers what they deserve, to give them dignity and respect in the workplace, not just in terms of wages and monetary compensation, but in how, the, in how they're treated. Vacations, holidays, family time, things of this nature, how they're treated at work. You know, a lot of times contracts can negotiate for things that are above the law, you know, meaning they can take a law and they can negotiate something better on top of it. Maybe it's in relation to discrimination. You know, the law only covers discrimination. Uh, it's only illegal if it's based on race, age, sex, religion, or national origin. In the state of Illinois, they've added gender. They've, add, or, uh, they've added uh, um, uh, sexual orientation. So you could have a contract that will also provide for uh, other types of discrimination to protect against that. So there's other things that we look for in collective bargaining that a group of workers will look for and fight for, quite frankly. So a lot of employers are predisposed against it because they know that they'll have to answer to their workers in some respect collectively with respect to how they're treated in terms of conditions of employment. It's a good question. What else? Yes. In the United States, um, nationally, there's about 12.4%. Last year was the first year that we saw an uptick in union participation in those numbers in decades. Uh, this year, that number has not held because, according, along with the rest of the economy, those numbers have dropped some. But last year was the first year that they've seen an up, a positive uptick in years. 
No. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with how the administrative agencies have conducted themselves with respect to workers. You know, uh, this, like I said, union busting has increased over the last two decades. In particular, it's become a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, so a lot of what the workers want, they're being fought and fought. It's tooth and nails fight in some instances. You know, Human Rights Watch, respected organization, think tank type place, did some research into union elections. They're not conducted like we conduct normal political elections here in the United States. They've likened the union election process to that of third world countries in the way that it's run um, because of the abuses that are allowed to take place with the workers that want to organize. You know, the workers, uh, the employers are allowed to have captive audience speeches where they'll hold the workers captive and they'll tell them, hey, you know what, this is, we don't want you to do this. We're going to know who voted for the union. We have our ways of finding out. Things like this. So they really fight against it hard, and it really taints what, what they're able to do and, and what we're able to accomplish as a movement in general. Um, having said that, we've won a number of elections, and, and we don't stop. It just gets harder for us to do what we got to do. But as long as there's workers out there that want a voice in the workplace, we're going to continue to fight to get them that voice. You know, but it's not easy. It's gotten increasingly more difficult every year. And I'll give you another recent example. You know, the National Labor Relations Board, which governs these elections and the process and how they take place, uh, we are still waiting for the appointments of two of our um, uh, appointees to the National Labor Relations Board. One of them is a guy named Craig Becker, uh, both attorneys, Craig Becker and Mark Pierce. The Republican administration has, or the, the Democratic administration has encountered a lot of resistance with the Republican minority in getting some of these people appointed to their office. They've had these names up for months. They just made a deal to do a bunch of appointments um, for other offices in, in national government, but they specifically withheld these two from that appointment list. Um, the Republicans have. And so we're asking the administration to make recess appointments to get these people in there so they can start adjudicating some of the backlog of cases that exist at the National Labor Relations Board. These are cases that go from uh, anything of employer discrimination, including union discrimination and elections, but the vast majority of them are employer. I think that's 10,000 to 1 for every case of uh, discrimination in an election instance at the National Labor Relations Board. Um, so for every one that a union will commit for every infraction during an election, there will be 10,000 or more on the other side. Uh, because they know that, it's like some, I'll call out Walmart as one of them. They factor that into their cost of doing business. They'll violate the National Labor Relations Act, knowing that the sanctions aren't, the sanctions are far, are, are far less uh, than what they would get if they just let the, let the workers organize and then have to deal with them you know, as a collective bargaining group. They'd rather just pay the infraction, whatever it is, or delay it procedurally for years and years and years until people just let it go. So that's some of the resistance that we encounter, um, and that's the reality of what's happening, and we're trying to change that right now politically. Um, like I said, this administration is more friendly and open to it, but it doesn't mean that we're going to get everything reversed that we need to or get everything that we demand. We're still going to have to fight for it. Any other questions? Yeah, the question was, um, you know, how have we been impacted by um, legislation, instances such as a right-to-work state versus a closed-shop state, which Illinois is a closed-shop state. You know, right-to-work sounds great. Everybody thinks, yeah, we ought to have the right-to-work, but that's not what it means. Um, right-to-work states uh, essentially... Um, 
when you organize a workplace, what ends up happening is in a right-to-work state, the entire collective bargaining unit is not then automatically dropped into the union. You still have to go individual by individual, and it's good in some respects, not good in many others. Um, what you end up hap uh, having happen is that uh, collectively as a group, they're not allowed to be cohesive, and employers get to continually pick at the group and pick at their, their status, really. And it puts you in a constant state of organizing and reorganizing, and the only reason why that happens is it's used to thwart the overall organizing effort and to dilute the power of, of workers when they come together. You know, I can remember once when I was a child, um, I was at a union meeting, and the employer had a family member who happened to be in this as an hourly worker was part of the bargaining unit. So he'd come to the meetings, and he would just really do the employer's bidding, you know, because uh, he's a family member, and try to dissuade the workers from joining a union. And he he kept getting up in, in the meeting, and, he, and I was a child at, at this point, and he said, we're all better off on our own. We're all better off going to the employer on our own, getting our own deal. That's what we should do. What, give me one good reason why. Uh, we should all stick together. And the guy that was running the meeting, you know, they had a, a box of pencils because they were doing a vote that night on whether or not they should they should accept an offer. And they had a box of pencils up, and, and they called the guy up to the front of the room, and they said, take this pencil and break it. And he took it, and he snapped it in half. No problem. Then they handed him all 50 pencils and said, now take these and break them. And he couldn't do it because, as individuals, they were easy to break. But collectively, it was impossible to do. It's an oversimplification, but it's a lesson that's always held in my mind as to why it's important for these groups of workers to stick together. It's going to be a lot harder to break you if you do it that way. So as far as a closed shop versus, versus um, a right-to-work state, it's another battle that we have, usually state by state. We have these battles. Um, this is always pro-business groups that want to change the state from a closed shop to a a, uh, um, um, a right-to-work state is what they call it. And um, what ends up happening is workers, if you look at the statistics there too, they get a lot less when it comes to collective bargaining in terms of wages, terms and conditions of employment, health insurance, the likelihood that they'll get it, and pension. So that's in general why we don't favor that type of legislation, those types of laws at the state level. Um, nationally, there have been some efforts to go uh, what they call right to work, and they put this really catchy phrase on it: "Right to work, great." You know, it's like saying, "Hey, this is uh, save the puppy legislation." Who wouldn't want to save a puppy? But that's not what it does. It's not what it does at all. You know, so a lot of that stuff is stuff that you know, as you get older, you're going to have to look into. You're going to have to be wary of how things are being labeled. You know, not just the stuff that you're eating, but the stuff that people are telling you about your workplace and and and, and about uh, your communities. So. Uh, we'd like to get involved in as much of that as possible, but it's always from the perspective of work. That's the anchor. Dignity and respect in the workplace. Yes? Can you talk a little bit about the uh, employee free choice act? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Employee Free Choice Act. It's a piece of proposed legislation that, that organized labor has been trying to get for a number of years. Um, and what that would do, essentially, is it would fix what's wrong with the National Labor Relations Act. It doesn't scrap it. A lot of people think it takes the National Labor Relations Act and it throws it out. It amends it in three ways. And Nick, tell me if I missed one of these. But um, the first way that it amends it is it calls for um, uh, an expedited 
election process. Right now what happens is if a group of workers want to organize in a workplace, employers can go to the labor board and delay and, and delay the election from through different uh, procedural uh, maneuvers, legal maneuvers. They can delay the election. And the statistics will tell you that delaying the election helps employers because they get time to work on the employees and to beat them, beat them down and to, and to, uh, to harass and whatever else their union avoidance you know, consultant tells them to do. So it calls for a quicker election. It means if the, if the workers want it, they'll get to an election quicker so um, they can make their decision free and clear of, of employer interference. The second way that it amends it is calls for a meaningful, um, uh, well, is that the issue that you're talking about, the open, the open ballot? Well, yeah, essentially what it does is it calls for that election. The way that the election is conducted, um, that, that's going to get scrapped. I mean, that's, you know, I can get into it now, but it's not likely that that will even be part of it. And what it did was it changed the actual election procedure uh, from how it's done now, from a private to open, so people could see how you voted. And, uh, it, you know, the employer sides are arguing that that allows for union intimidation, you know, in, in the process. But... I don't think that's as hotly a contested issue now because the real issue that they're trying to get at in this law is that for the first time provides meaningful penalties for employers to commit infractions. You know, right now, employers have gotten so large and so wealthy that it's easier for them to break the law and take the penalty than it is, you know, to abide by it. Um, so what it does is it calls for meaningful sanctions, you know, uh, in the law, which is something real. I think uh, it's something that's needed. Um, and then the third way that it, it would change it is um, the expedited process, the meaningful. Oh, it calls for arbitration. So I, I talked to you a little bit about, and I asked you the percentage of contracts that are gained when a group of employees try to organize. You know, if they can get past the election and win it, they got a less than 50% chance that they'll actually get a contract after a year. Because what happens is the employers delay, 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 knowing that the delay and the procedural and legal delays help them to frustrate the workers and to turn them over, meaning fire them, get rid of them, or, you know, come up with a reason to turn them over. So what this does is it says, look, if you can't get to a contract after 60 days, we're going to give you 30 days to mediate it, you know, using a federal mediator or some other mediator of choice between the two parties. If after 30 additional days, so a total of 90, if you can't get to a contract then, then you're going to go to an, an industry arbitrator, somebody who's familiar with the industry that you live in and is going to set that rate for two years and say this is what the contract, this is a fair contract for both parties. That's what you're going to live by. You've got two years to come back to the table and fix it. It doesn't mean that the employer has to be stuck with that. It means that the workers get what they wanted, right? Now, unions may not be entirely happy with it. Employers may not be entirely happy with it, but it's like a judge's decision. They come in and say, this is what's fair in the industry. Now, it doesn't mean that the union and the employers are prohibited from sitting down and bargaining with each other. During that two-year period, they can still do it, but the workers don't get held up in it. Um, for that period of time, which uh, I happen to think is a great aspect of the law because it will compel employers to sit down and deal fairly rather than just delay and delay and delay and delay, which is what we're encountering more often than that now. Um, so th that's the Employee Free Choice Act. Whether or not they'll become a, real a reality remains to be seen. Now, 
if you guys are following national politics, you'll know that we no longer have a, um, a supermajority in the Senate. The Democrats have a majority, but not a supermajority. And it's something procedurally that exists only in the Senate, this thing called a filibuster. Is everybody familiar with what that is, a filibuster? It means if the minority party, right, in this, t this case, today it happens to be the Republicans, if they want to delay a vote, they can just come up and talk at the mic until they're done. They, they'll come up and they'll read books. They'll read Mark Twain for two hours. The next one will come up and read it for 18 hours. You know, and they'll, they'll just talk and talk and talk uninterrupted. It doesn't have to be germane or relevant to what the legislation is that they're supposed to be voting on. They can simply use it to just delay. Right? Both sides get to do it. The Democrats were able to do it when they were the minority. The Republicans are in the minority now, and it, they get to do it. Right? So the only way that you can beat a filibuster is by cloture, right? C-L-O-T-U-R-E, right? It's another maneuver, cloture. In order to do that, you need to have two-thirds of the House with you. The Democrats used to have that until they lost the seat in Massachusetts. They no longer have that supermajority, right? So they can't achieve success and a cloture vote to end a filibuster. So that means that their leverage is gone. Not completely gone, because they still have a majority, but for all practical purposes, they can't survive a filibuster. So whether or not we'll be able to get to the Employee Free Choice Act, I mean, you all probably saw what happened with health care. You know, the, the election in Massachusetts will change that dynamic quite a bit, whether there'll be national health care at all, but that has retarded progress in terms of getting meaningful labor reform done. And the number one tool and vehicle that we were using to do that was the Employee Free Choice Act. It's not dead, but it's kind of in limbo right now and will probably be changed from its current form because we have to, the, the reality is that the negotiations will change. We no longer have that, that uh, filibuster-proof majority. Anybody else? Questions are all great questions. There's no such thing as a bad one. Yes? The media portrays the as the bad guys, whether it's the That's a great question, and I could talk all day, and I'd love to talk all day about that one. Let me just give a couple of examples to start out with. And, and did everybody hear what the issue was? Kind of unions are being, the workers are being vilified in some ways with respect to the, um, the things that have happened with the public pension systems, with the CTA debacle, uh, what's going on there, possible cutting services, uh, things of that nature, that it's really the union that's catching a lot of that blame. McCormick Place is another one that we could layer onto that. Um, this is stuff that the media doesn't have time to properly report on, and sometimes they don't even have the inclination to properly report on it. I'll start with the CTA. A lot of that had to do with the pension system there. And these city employees, they don't get Social Security, right? They don't get Social Security like everybody else does. They get their pension from the city, and that's it, right? So it's not like they're layering these pension benefits onto one another, um, it is a public provided pension, but when the CTA about a year and a half ago had to make a bunch of changes to their pension plan because it was insolvent, 
um, they did that, right? They took a big hit. They essentially started a two-tier system, and the people that are coming in, the new workers in the plan, are paying a lot larger portion uh, contribution into that system. Now, a lot of folks said, well, how could this happen? It's not right. You know, these workers are getting, you know, really exorbitant, uh, you know, pensions and something that's not done in the private sector. But what they fail to tell you is the private sector pensions have been on a decline for the last 20 years, big time, right? They've already switched from a defined benefit to a defined contribution, which is a whole other debate that can take place. It's not a good thing for the participants in the pension. But um, so what ended up happening was they ended up having to make this change. It was forced upon them. What we did was we went back and looked at how many times the state, because all these pension plans are handled, are all set up and handled in Springfield, right? It's all by act of legislative uh, governance, right? So it all has to happen in Springfield. Anytime changes are made to these plans or the plans are set up or they're dissolved or they're amended, it all requires legislative action in Springfield. So what we did is we went back and we looked over the last 15, 20 years, and we found out that on over 20 occasions, the payments that go into the pension plans were not made. Now, the legislature called them payment holidays, right? We, on our side, advocating for the workers that are supposed to be beneficiaries of that, call them deadbeat days, right? Because they didn't pay on something that they were supposed to. What made matters worse is every time they had the ability to increase benefits, they did it because it was a popular thing to do. The elected officials were like, yeah, this is okay. We're extending, you know, we're, we're increasing benefits. We're cost of living. Everything's, you know, it's fine. But what they weren't doing on the back end is matching it with contributions. So what ended up happening is this perfect storm scenario. You had the bottom drop out of the financial markets with the economy, which impacted everybody, but it only made the problem worse with the public pension plans, right? Not just the CTA, but all of them, right? Private and public. So... We had that dynamic at play, and really a lot of the workers and a lot of the unions caught a lot of flack for what had happened there. But the reality was the trustees on that plan, the CTA plan, don't even get to vote on the changes that take place in that plan. They're really like administrators. The legislature in Springfield, right? Remember I told you what you gain in the contract can be lost in the halls of legislature or at the county or at the city or any other public body, Right? So these workers did everything that they were supposed to do. But they had that taken away from them because it wasn't properly funded. So they had to fix it. In order to do it, the people that are coming into the system and the new employees have to play a greater share to help fund that. So that's what happened in that scenario. McCormick Place. When it, when it was discussed just a couple months ago, I don't know how many of you followed it in the press, but... The first thing that happens was they said, oh, you know what happened at McCormick Place? The reason why we lost the health care show and the plastic show and the reason why the city is now struggling and McCormick Place is probably the single largest economic engine for the entire state of Illinois, right, because of the, the money that we get in from these trade shows that come to the city. They stay in the hotels. They eat at the restaurants. They, you know, participate uh, um, in what goes on at the McCormick Place, and they stimulate the economy. We're able to take that money, that guaranteed money, and bond it out to do capital construction and, and maintenance and road construction. That's how this all kind of works. You need to have an engine, though, to keep that money coming in. That was McCormick Place. 
and lately McCormick Place has taken a big hit. The first thing that happened was probably the first eight to ten media reports were, well, it's because the electricians are making $90 an hour over there at McCormick Place. And the plumbers and the pipe fitters and all those are making $100 an hour. That's the problem. That's what's wrong at McCormick Place. The workers need to take some hits there and make some sacrifices And what's going on. That wasn't the case, though. You know, over the years, we had made concessions. What that means is we gave something back to the employer. In this case, it was McCormick Place, um, or to the contractors at McCormick Place that have those exclusive contracts. And the argument that they've had over the years was that we need to be in line with our competitors, Orlando, Las Vegas, probably the two primary competitors. What we tried to tell the media ahead of this and during this, and only recently have they start, started to catch on, was that it's not the workers. There's a $90 an hour bill that's going to the person that's bringing in, uh, the person that's coming into McCormick Place as an exhibitor, but it's not all going to the worker, right? What we did is we put those worker wages and benefits in line with Orlando and with Las Vegas. So they're relatively the same. The problem is the contractor was tacking on this extra fee. They were saying it was for labor, but it wasn't going to the worker. It wasn't going to the union. It was going to the contractor, right? So we had to really put together an aggressive strategy for dealing with the media because the media was just all about, at first, and it was from Mayor Daly on down, to everybody at McCormick Place saying it was the workers, the workers, the unions, the unionized workforce is too expensive. What they didn't tell you was that these two operators, these show operators at McCormick Place, had essentially a monopoly. They go with the show wherever it goes, right? So in this case, the show that we lost, the, the health care show, that went to Orlando. What they didn't tell you in the, in the newspapers was that because the workers in Chicago are so skilled, more so than even their counterparts in Orlando and Vegas, they're getting paid the same rate now. Why did they fly dozens of them down to Florida from the electricians, the pipe trades, and everybody else to put the show on? Because they had the skilled workforce to do it. They didn't have a skilled enough workforce in Orlando to put the show on. So the contractor took them down there to put the show together because they had the contract for it. There's also this other thing called drayage, which exists at McCormick Place, which let's say you're an, an exhibitor from China. You want to move a piece of machinery that you want to show off at McCormick Place. It's going to cost you $12,000 or $15,000 to ship it from China all the way to the front door of McCormick Place or the back door at McCormick Place. Then it's going to cost you 17000 to get it from the back door to the show floor. $2,000 more. That's drayage, picking it up and moving it. That doesn't go directly to the workers. That doesn't go to the unions. It goes to the show operators. They charge that drayage. So they're starting to uncover a lot of these costs now, but the first pop came on labor. They threw it all on the workforce, you know, at first, unjustly so, but they're starting to see the light now, and they're starting to look into a lot of this, of what happened. So those are two examples um, of some of the stuff that you just have to find out on your own. You don't have to take what I'm telling you, you know, as the gospel truth. But when you're out there, just try to understand what both sides of the story are. Don't always trust that the media is giving it to you straight. All right? 
you know, most of the time, you know, in this day and age, the media is challenged as well. They've fallen on tough times. The Sun-Times, the Tribune, any print media has really suffered from what's going on in the technological age, and they need to sell papers. Well, selling that these two sides are getting along isn't very attractive reading, right? So they're constantly trying to dig to see where the rub is and where the angst is between the parties so they can print that because that sells. You know, so that's part of the reality. I'm not crying about it. That's, that's part of the reality that we face now, you know? The press, I think, has gotten a lot more away from from reporting news and, and more into making news, into editorializing and so forth. That's a reality that we have to live with. You know, an organized labor, more often than not, will come out on the short end of that. You know, we don't get the benefit of the doubt. That's just the way it is, and it's something that we need to work through, and we do the best that we can to do that. Anything else? How are we doing on time, Troy? Ten more minutes. All right. Any other questions? Nothing? You guys had enough? You want some more? <laughs> Got a lot of more. I got pages of stuff that Nick gave me. <laughs> um, but no, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll read this quote to you. And I came across it. It's kind of a long quote, but it was by John F. Kennedy um, in October of 1960. And it was on his reflections um, dealing with unions. It says, those who would destroy or further limit the rights of organized labor, those who would cripple collective bargaining or prevent organization of the unorganized, do a disservice to the cause of democracy. Fifty years or so ago, the American labor movement was little more than a group of dreamers. And look at it now. From coast to coast, in factories, stores, warehouses, and businesses, establishments of all kinds, industrial democracy is at work. Employees represented by free and democratic trade unions of their own choosing participate actively in determining their wages, their hours, and working conditions. Their living standards are the highest in the world. Their job rights are protected by collective bargaining agreements. They have fringe benefits that were unheard of less than a generation ago. Our labor unions are not narrow, self-seeking groups. They have raised wages, shortened hours, and provided supplemental benefits. Through collective bargaining and grievance procedures, they have brought justice and democracy to the shop floor, but their work goes beyond their own jobs and even beyond our borders. Our unions have fought for aid to education, for better housing, for development of our natural, national resources, and for saving the family-sized farms. They have spoken not for narrow self-interest, but for the public interest and for the people. So that was, our, that was John F. Kennedy that said that, and I don't think I've ever said it better myself, so I thought I'd just acknowledge him and, and give you the quote outright. So thank you very much. I'll be here if you want to ask any other questions. And, uh, Troy, once again, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.